In all areas, the UK continues to backtrack. The European Union argues that, that we, be, we should be subject to rules of the club that we have left. The precondition is the level playing field. Uh, we can deliver a real Brexit that achieves our objectives. But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish Protocol or the Northern Irish Protocol fully implemented. I'm going to miss being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's weekly podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor in Brussels. I'm Sean Whelan, RTE's correspondent in London. And I'm Colm O'Mungoyne, RTE's deputy foreign editor in Dublin. Each week, Brexit Republic brings you all the latest developments from London, Brussels and Dublin. Counting down the hours, over four and a half years since the Brexit referendum, we should find out in the coming days what Britain has left the EU for. We'll take you through the drama of this week. What's at stake in the final hardball trade-offs over fisheries and the level playing field? And we look at why some capitals led by France got into some off-the-ball incidents with their chief negotiator at the 11th hour and why some are channeling their best Theresa May and suggesting that no deal is better than a bad deal. But first, to you, Sean, at 25 to 8 on Friday evening, we had some news in the last 10 minutes from David Frost and Michel Barnier issuing a joint statement, which I suppose is positive news that they could agree on that at least. What did they say? Well, it's nothing to do with ordering more pizzas. What they're saying is they're pausing the talks. Let me just read it out, the whole thing for you. After one week of intense negotiations in London, together with David Frost, we agreed today that the conditions for agreement are not met due to significant divergences on level playing field, governance and fisheries. We agreed to pause the talks in order to brief our principles on the state of play of the negotiations. President von der Leyen and Prime Minister Johnson will discuss the state of play tomorrow afternoon. So that is the latest and greatest from that. Well, it's the same old, same old that they're stuck on. The things we've been talking and kicking around for months and months now, level playing field, governance and fisheries, they've gone as far as they can go. The mandate has been stretched to the absolute limit of the elastic. And now, finally, that political moment that we've also been speaking out for weeks, if not months, uh, is about to happen. And that is the point where Boris Johnson and Ursula von der Leyen make contact with each other and try and thrash out the final political compromises that are needed to try and put a deal together. Right. Well, what if, Tony, what does that actually change? Because unless Michel Barnier's mandate is changed, can the EU compromise? It's been said during the week that Barnier was on or almost over the line of the EU's red lines in terms of trying to offer or achieve compromise would the European Council have to meet to change his mandate if Ursula von der Leyen gets sufficient reassurance from Boris Johnson and if she trusts him and if she thinks there's room for manoeuvre on on his part? And that's a lot of ifs. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's any question that his mandate will be changed at this stage. And to be honest, I, I don't think that's ever been a runner. But certainly, as Sean has said, he has had to push the mandate to the limit. Um, I mean, for example, the mandate on fisheries says that the EU will uphold the status quo uh, on access levels for European boats and and the quota share, essentially meaning that things will stay exactly the same. Now, obviously, that has not been a runner for the past couple of months, but people who will try and be in the mind of Michel Barnier will say, "Mm, well, he will uphold the status quo 
brackets as far as possible, close brackets. Uh, so he certainly has been, uh, you know, trying to stretch the mandate there. And he did get a bit of pushback this week from the likes of uh, the French, the Danes, uh, Belgium, the Netherlands, and a number of other countries that perhaps he should just be careful not to um, not to give away the family silver too quickly uh, on the key issues. And I, I put this point to um, to, to a, a diplomat who's not from a coastal state, um, I should say, but he said, well, there there is the family silver, but to some countries, spoons are more important than knives and we all have our <laughs> own interests. Uh, and, you know, for, for his country, fishing was not a, an interest at all, but he understood that it was an, a serious interest for other member states and they and the principle of solidarity kind of runs through this so he basically said look michel barnier knows exactly what our interests and our positions are he's an experienced politician and negotiator and he will make sure that you know none of us are completely put out by what emerges in in the final deal um on fisheries for example the the um one ambassador from a coastal member state said look if we sign this deal and it's not a good deal like we, we'll end up regretting it for for 10 or 20 years uh, if we wait and have a no deal yes it would be tough for us not to be able to access british waters in 2021 but that might be an investment worth making so in other words no deal might be better than a bad deal because the belief in Brussels is that with a no-deal situation, the UK would suffer worse and would be back to the table within three months, six months or a year, and a better deal would be got by the EU. Now, obviously, the UK would probably say, bring it on, <laughs> just try us. Uh, but that certainly is is, is a, not an uncommon view uh, around here in Brussels. Sean, you were saying earlier that fisheries may not be the sticking point it was, that level playing field is now more the sticking point. What gave you to understand that and where is the room for compromise on fisheries? I think fisheries is something that can be compromised on because essentially you're doing what gets done every December in, in the Fisheries Council, the, the annual allocation of uh, catches, tax and quotas. Uh, it, look, the fish uh, that swim around the seas uh, are in short supply. Uh, their stocks have to be managed. And it doesn't matter whether countries are inside the EU or outside the EU. And we do this every year with Iceland and Norway and the Faroe Islands anyway. Just the, the, those countries that have fish swimming off their seas have to manage the stocks because if they don't, they will be fished out of existence within a matter of a few short years. Uh, and so whether Britain is in or out, this kind of negotiation has to happen. And it has to happen uh, as far into the future as, as any of us can see. So I think it's something that can be compromised on, a deal can be reached on it, because at the end of the day, it is essentially about how many fish you're able to catch. So if you can do it as an annual uh, thing, deal within the, the common fisheries policy, you should be able to do it right. as an annual deal. But, but again, they, they are looking to get the, uh, more fish. That principle has already been conceded by the EU. It's just a, a question of how many more fish they want to get. On the other side, we have the single market issues and the level playing field issues. And their compromise is much, much more difficult because in many ways the EU is the single market and anything that can undermine 
or threaten or pose a risk to the single market, the EU can't compromise on it. They just can't. And I think this is where we're really running up against the problem because the British side keep talking about their sovereignty uh, and being treated as a sovereign equal. And this line that has been hammered out by every minister that's ever spoken about these talks over the past year, the EU don't understand that we are a sovereign country and a sovereign equal in these talks, and they have to treat us like that, not as some kind of a captive uh, of the European Union. And so these positions are becoming more absolutists, and it's really hard to see grounds on which either side can compromise because how do you sell out your sovereignty well of course you have to compromise on your sovereignty if you're in any kind of an international organization be that nato or the oecd or the eu itself to a greater or lesser extent if you're engaged with the outside world you are dealing with your your sovereignty and compromising it in order to get something uh, greater uh, but the way they're talking here and the way the eu uh, have become convinced that if they concede ground uh, or too much ground on their single market access and the issues of level playing field, the kind of subsidy regimes that the British might be able to advantage themselves of uh, after they're out of the EU, uh, that I think is is much, much, much harder to compromise on. And that's probably going to be the rock on which the deal founders, if it does founder. Right. Tony, you were saying there that there are some coastal states who are of the view that a no deal is better than a bad deal. Ireland doesn't seem to be one of those states, and it's a coastal state. Micheál Martin, the Taoiseach, was out in Dublin earlier. He was actually in Trinity College. He was in the, the long room looking at the Book of Kells and also at an original copy of the Proclamation of the Republic. So the, he went in and did a press conference afterwards. We need to give people certainty about the future uh, and the sensible trade deal would be a very important step in the right direction for all our peoples now, uh, given the enormous negative impact of COVID-19 on our economic and social life. The last thing our citizens need now is a second shock uh, of the kind that a no-deal Brexit would bring. Um, and so I, I have faith and I have trust in the European Union negotiating team. Uh, in Michel Barnier um, and in President uh, Ursula von der Leyen of the Commission. Uh, there have been some countries putting pressure on wanting to seek additional information. 27 member states can't negotiate collectively. Uh, we've appointed a negotiating team. We've got to allow them the space now to, 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 to conclude these talks uh, and hopefully uh, bring um, an agreement, uh, or, or, sorry, achieve an agreement out of this. There is no question, but there has been intensive talks underway and ongoing between the uh, United Kingdom government negotiating team and the European Union negotiating team, and that is continuing. My understanding and my sense is that that will continue um, over the weekend and that there will be uh, further engagement. Um, I fervently hope that there will be a deal. I think a deal is in the best interests of the United Kingdom. It's in the best interests of the island of Ireland and it's in the best interests of the European Union, and particularly in terms of the people we represent, workers, businesses, um, people involved in education, uh, right across the board. Um, so, Tony, we heard Michal Martin there. Is there a difference within the European Union now about that view, deal or no deal, with Ireland being to the fore and saying, look, can at least we get some kind of a deal because a no deal has far more devastating consequences for us than maybe other European countries? I mean, I don't think Ireland is, is saying that out loud. Um, and I, I, I mean, I wouldn't overstate the idea that, that there's been a massive breaking of ranks by, by the French uh, and, and others. Um, I mean, 
I think certainly after Michel Barnier briefed EU ambassadors on Wednesday morning, then on Thursday, you know, we, we seem to detect a tougher line from the EU side in the negotiations. And then, of course, Downing Street began to brief fairly vividly on Thursday night, late afternoon, that the EU were now putting new obstacles in the way of progress and that things were going backwards. And from a position where people thought there might even be a deal today, Friday, uh, it looked like it was going to drag on over the weekend. Um, I mean, Ireland has an awful lot to lose, obviously, from no deal, but it has a lot to lose as well if there's a fisheries deal, which is not uh, great from an EU point of view. And just to, just to flesh out some of the observations Sean was making there, I mean, what, what I was told during the week was that we've had this scrap over the quota share uh, and Michel Barnier's offer of between 15 and 18% of the value of the fish that European boats catch in British waters, whereas the UK were saying, no, we want at least 80% of that 650 million euro worth of fish that you guys catch. Um, that seems to have been parked, and the British side were then focusing on the question of access and this really ties into this notion of taking back control. The British seem to want to have, um, you know, a fairly tangible, clear grip on the, 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 the door that lets you into British waters. Uh, and the way they were planning to do this was at those annual uh, negotiations every year that they would have um, where they would share out what's called the total allowable catch. As Sean mentioned, the tax, the tax and quotas. It, yes, it's a, a negotiation that happens every year, every December in Brussels. And it's the, the total allowable catch is how much of your quota share can you catch depending on what the science tells you. So if a stock is under pressure, then you can catch less. Um, and the science is based on uh, an international organization called ISIS, not, not the Islamic State, certainly, but uh, uh, the international, some international body that uh, guides scientific expertise on stock levels. But, you know, these guidelines from ISIS are fairly uh, loose and can be got around quite easily. And it could quite well be the case that there wouldn't be an agreement between the UK and the EU over what the total allowable catch was for individual stocks and individual countries. And in that case, what I was told was that the UK would say, right, and that if there's no agreement, then we reserve the right to keep those fishing boats out of British waters. Uh, so that would be a scenario where the UK could effectively close the door on certain EU fleets uh, and boats every every December. Uh, and the EU would regard that as a, as a disaster because, you know, nobody is going to invest in the fishing industry if there is a danger that they'll that they're going to be shut out of. So their, what's the way around that? Valuable. Then? Well, it's not clear, but certainly, sub subsequent to me uh, speaking to a contact on this, it became clear that Michel Barnier had kept stressing in the negotiations on fish this week. Uh, no, we need stability. We need predictability and guarantees. And I think it will all boil down to what those guarantees are and what that predictability looks like. Uh, so they may dress up um, this sense of the UK slamming the door shut uh, every December with some 
principles or safeguards or reassurances. Um, but it is it is a risk, and certainly fishing organisations in Ireland are concerned about any sense or any idea that they would be refused access to UK waters. And another element to this is that there are some fishing grounds which are mixed. So even if you're going after a particular stock, you'll probably catch other stocks which you're not supposed to catch. In that case, you'd be barred from those waters altogether right. uh, just so you don't catch the, the, the forbidden fruit, if you like. Now, having said that, this is not agreed yet, but this is what I'm told was uh, an idea that the British were pushing. Okay, Sean, for, for anybody to overcome risk or to increase at least their risk appetite, there has to be trust, which has been in pretty short supply, which brings us maybe to the, the level playing field and people agreeing fair competition rules. What's the, what's the situation at the moment with the level playing field and why has that moved to the fore in your analysis as, to, as the main sticking point? Well, it was always going to be a, a, a sticking point. I just got an email this afternoon from an economist in Dublin, Pat McLaughlin, saying, uh, here, I thought I might remind you of something I wrote in September 2016. Uh, and he pinpointed precisely this issue uh, of uh, level playing field uh, and the competition rules and fair competition and subsidies, uh, because he was saying, look, at the e- with the UK outside the EU, that's all fine. It's a great country strong, rich, great universities, great research systems, very entrepreneurial, they will then look to make themselves even more attractive for inward investment. And of course, this is one of the the lifebloods of the Irish economy uh, is inward investment. Um, But other countries as well, they're all chasing inward investment. Uh, The UK could, outside uh, of the uh, European uh, level playing field, uh, decided they were going to offer more subsidies. There were two things that, that Pat McLaughlin had, had uh, picked on. One was reducing the corporation tax in the UK. If you think back four years, there was a lot of talk about that. It became fairly uh, apparent that they wouldn't be able to afford to do that. And now with COVID and the amount of money the governments have spent, I think there's pretty much zero chance that any country is going to be able to do much uh, in terms of tax cutting. But subsidy has definitely come onto the uh, agenda here in the UK. I mean, they're paying for all these private railway companies and taking many of them back into state ownership right now because of COVID. But they've said explicitly in this government that they would be looking to put money behind certain high technology ventures and sectors to try and uh, bolster and and boost the position of those sectors uh, within the British economy. So there's a certain amount of nervousness uh, in neighbouring countries. Ireland, certainly, but all of the EU countries, really, uh, that Britain could become super competitive uh, outside of the EU by flashing the cash in ways that European countries can't. And remember, these rules came into place to try and stop countries uh, outspending one another, outbidding one another, and propping up failed or dying industries uh, using taxpayers' money or politicians just giving money to their mates. And a lot of the British civil servants that I've heard over here, they like the state aid regime Uh, from the EU because they can fend off ministerial requests to do precisely those sort of things, but they might be able to start doing it then. And that is is what they're afraid of, that by opening up the single market access without tariffs and without quotas, that's one thing. But to do that and then uh, enable the British to basically do what they want on subsidies and tax cutting and all kinds of sweetheart deals for industries, that's a whole different matter. And that's why it is so 
uh, vitally important for the EU side. Right. And it also is much, much, much more economically important. The amount of, of the euros involved, uh, just they do not compare in scale. Okay, which brings us to governance, Tony, because if it's a thing that Fish came down to an annualised negotiation and Europe was concerned that the pinch would be put on if the UK decided to play hardball over access to waters, and if Europe had concern over state aids, then this idea of cross-retaliation in different sectors would come into play. It's an important... I suppose, tool in the toolbox of the European Union in terms of negotiations and exercising leverage. So where is that at at the moment? Yeah, well, I think that that has really got to the heart of the difficulties which emerged uh, last night, uh, Thursday night. Um, I mean, essentially, and we've talked about this before in the podcast, the, the UK set out by saying, well, we, we can operate under the World Trade Organization provisions uh, when it comes to state aid and, and subsidies and so on. Uh, then they said, well, you know, we just want what's in a straightforward free trade agreement. Um, but then in October, David Frost said, well, OK, we can look beyond that and agree perhaps high-level principles on state subsidies. Um, but the UK were always thinking of two distinct systems. They would have their system, the EU would have theirs, whereas the EU were looking more for something that was a, a joint system that would have would have teeth and there would be a degree of enforcement and monitoring. And that's where things have really got difficult. Uh, Initially, I think the UK, the the EU were looking for, okay, they've talked about the UK having a robust, independent competition regulator who would basically have have an ex-ante provision. In other words... Just explain that, yeah. Yeah, the UK would have to get permission from him or her uh, before they do any subsidising, and the UK right ask for permission rather would, than forgiveness, uh, yeah, ask which for would permission. be the no. They would be asking for permission from a UK body, but that UK body would be somehow, you know, un- under the uh, under the aegis of this joint legal framework that would emerge from this treaty. Uh, and you know that that brings about its own problems. So th- that request of of you know prior permission seems to have been dropped but they want the ability for a company say a company in cork feels it's been screwed because its rival in birmingham has just got a big dump of cash from the british government you know where where does that company get redressed you, he can't go to the European Commission anymore he, and the Commission can't take a case to the European Court of Justice so there has to be some legal redress and okay there might be an arbitration component to any overall deal but the EU is very keen that that company could take action in the UK courts or the UK regulator could take action in the UK courts on behalf of that company um, so again this is where the EU is saying you know, we, we, we know that you were not one of the big offenders when it came to state aid uh, breaches when you were in the EU. Right, but that was we before that the current say, government. Yeah, exactly. And, and we know that you say you're not going to be splashing the cash like it's the 1970s, but we just don't know. Uh, and, uh, you know, Dominic Cummings, when he was around, um, you know, was known to, to want to put huge amounts of money into uh, a big high-tech champion that would be, you know, UK branded. Um, so these are the things that, as far as I'm aware, have been have been fought over and are causing the most uh, difficulties. And again, as you say, if there's a breach or if the EU feels there's a breach and they, it goes to arbitration, well, they want to be able to take swift action and that that action would happen perhaps in another sector. So, OK, you could have tariffs, 
the UK would probably live with that. Uh, but you know, there could be uh, much tougher retaliation uh, somewhere else. But just as a as a sort of a, a final point on this whole state aid business, I mean, the EU has uh, fairly strict state aid rules, but they also have a lot of exemptions where you can spend money in particular circumstances. Like in the current COVID crisis. Like in the current COVID crisis, or if there's, uh, you know, if if there's if there's a region of the EU which has serious poverty or unemployment, uh, a company, a government is perfectly entitled to p- pour money in there. If it's for cultural or sporting activities, and uh, it it just so happens that you know we've talked a lot about the Internal Market Bill and the Northern Ireland Protocol, but the Internal Market Bill also has a bunch of clauses on how state aid would operate in the UK. And if you look at the list of things that they would permit when it comes to state subsidies, they're almost identical to what the EU has. I mean, it's quite uncanny right. to look at the list. So, you know, there, there may be areas where they are they have more in common than, than we realise. But a final, final word, the way the EU has been tackling state aid recently, as we know, being Irish, is through taxation and accusing or targeting governments that they feel have granted state aid illegally through having sweetheart tax agreements. Now, which which imagine- would give cause for concern because the Irish government is contesting the current Apple tax uh, ruling on the basis that they say, look, tax is an issue. That's a national competence. It is an issue of sovereignty. It isn't a matter of state aid. I mean, if the UK government may look askance at that and say, look, if we agree a common state aid regime, does the European Union get to look at our corporation tax regime? Well, this is this is exactly the question, and you know, would would a would a UK regulator who who has one eye on what's happening in Brussels uh, suddenly say to the Treasury, actually, you you can't you can't spend money in that direction, or you can't uh, have a tax incentive for this particular sector or this company? I mean, it's it's very hard to see a UK regulator, no matter how robust and independent he or she is going against the will of the House of Commons, which, of course, approves all taxation measures in the UK. Right. Speaking as seeing as you're talking about the internal market bill, there's another piece of legislation coming up in front of the Commons next week, Sean. Simon Coveney, the Minister for Foreign Affairs here, was talking about it. It was a very pointed text. Uh, he was he was referring to it, not a text, a tweet, should I say. He said, a clear message to London for some time, a second piece of legislation deliberately breaching the withdrawal agreement and international law will be taken as a signal that the UK doesn't want a deal. No deal of this complexity is concluded without at least a basic level of trust and goodwill. Over to you, UK. What is the situation with that bill on Monday? I mean, if a conversation is had between Ursula von der Leyen and Boris Johnson about the existing problems of fisheries level playing field and governance, and then this comes into the mix on Monday, how has that got around? Good question. Um, And I mean that. It really is a good question. What's happening on Monday is the internal markets bill, uh, which was shredded uh, up in the House of Lords by two of the three biggest defeats a government has suffered since the House of Lords was reformed in 1999. I mean, that's how much their lordships and ladyships think of this. Uh, they think it's really, really damaging to the UK. And, and uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff in the internal markets bill, as Tony was saying, uh, almost all of it very necessary for the UK to have an internal market uh, and make sure that products that are put out in Scotland are compatible for sale in England and Wales, etc., not a problem, but it's the bits in there, these so-called lawbreaker clauses that give them the power to disapply parts of the 
Northern Ireland Protocol from the withdrawal agreement, last year's agreement, uh, that is the thing that has shredded trust with the European partners, has raised a lot of hackles, particularly in Ireland. There would be another tranche of uh, legislative measures that would give them further powers to disapply parts of the, the Northern Ireland Protocol due to be published uh, in a taxation bill uh, on Wednesday. And they're uh, insisting and as late a- as yesterday that these things have to stay in. A spokesperson for the Prime Minister said, look, this is an insurance policy. We need these. Yes, and, and they say they, they need to have them. Uh, in some ways, you could see it as them flipping around Northern Ireland, which they considered to have been weaponized by the EU uh, during the withdrawal agreement negotiations. Uh, they are now able to flip that around and use it as a weapon uh, to push back at the EU in these future relationship negotiations. Uh, the EU side really don't like it. Uh, I don't think it worked terribly well as a threat against the EU because uh, they seem to have pushed back against it. It didn't go down well in America either, not just with uh, Joe Biden and the Democrats, but the Republicans and President Trump's administration also don't like the approach that the British have been taking, but they seem to be locked into it. Uh, they think it's been good for uh, keeping the uh, nose to the grindstone in the talks process and helping to push it to a conclusion. Um, as I say, it's due back in the House of Commons, uh, the Internal Market Bill, where the government say uh, that they're going to add back the clauses that were deleted, the law-breaking clauses. Uh, they haven't published anything yet. They're due to publish it on Monday. Uh, at three o'clock, they start a debate. At nine o'clock, they wrap it with a, de- with a, a vote. Uh, so that will then be uh, the Commons putting them back in. There will be a bit of toing and froing with the Lords, but ultimately they can overrule right. them and push it through. Uh, and we'll want to have it through before the before Christmas so that it's ready to go for January 1. But you've also got this other money bill coming up where they don't have to go to the House of Lords on it. And that will put, it w- could give them further powers to uh, disapply or undermine or ignore or rip up whatever phrase you want bits of the Northern Ireland Protocol. So it's really right. serious stuff and well, it's seen a de- as a deal breaker. Well, that's it. If a deal is to be concluded by Sunday, would the European Union side of things not need reassurances that the UK was not going to have these in the legislation that's in the Commons next week? I mean, you would imagine they, they would. <laughs> and, yeah, and, and they, they've taken they the view would. that if, if you have a deal, then uh, the clauses won't apply. So they become redundant by virtue of the fact. Right, that but their very deal. presence is repugnant to the European Union, Tony, isn't it? Uh, absolutely, and, and Michel Barnier, when he spoke to ambassadors on uh, on Wednesday, said uh, if the UK bring in further clauses in a in another bill, the taxation bill, which breach international law, in other words, which breach the Northern Ireland Protocol. He said, uh, we will be in a crisis situation and there will be a complete breakdown in trust. Now, he told ambassadors that he had conveyed that message to the UK. So, you know, this is a serious warning from the EU and has been from the beginning. I don't think there's any sense that the EU would quietly let that one wither on the vine if in the in the euphoric uh, afterglow of actually getting a, a free trade agreement done. Right. And remember, you know, the free trade agreement has to be ratified by the European Parliament and it has to be approved. I mean, Michel Barnier w- will do the handshake or whatever, the fist bump with uh, David Frost uh, if they do get a deal, but it still has to be uh, approved by capitals and approved by the European Parliament. And capitals are certainly not going to approve it uh, if those clauses are still there. 
you know, let's just say we get agreement on Sunday or Monday and then uh, the bill comes in uh, on Monday night, as Sean was describing, and then the other bill comes in. If those clauses are in there, then we, we are in a seriously difficult right. situation. And, you know, given that the fact that some member states have let it be known that they would be willing to go down the road of no deal uh, on the basis that the UK will suffer more, then you can be resting assured that 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 scenario will come about very quickly. Right. Well, can I ask then, why is there any optimism that a deal would be concluded by Sunday when at least people would know what the UK, which, which hand the UK was playing when they see what is introduced by way of legislation next week? Why would there be a deal done on Sunday? Why is there optimism about that, if you both come in on that? Well, I, I think the uh, optimism is trying to be generated here in London um, with a kind of carrot and stick approach, the stick being that internal market bill, uh, the carrot being let's get the deal out of the way. It means it can feed in through the uh, European system on Monday with the foreign ministers and if necessary to the summit on Thursday uh, and get the process going because the EU does have a very big job uh, to actually uh, get all of the the legal scrubbing and translations and ratifications done. Uh, Tony outlined all of that last week in in the the podcast. Huge amount of work. So the sooner the better uh, from the EU's point of view. Uh, Also, if we are down to three issues and if it's going to be dealt with now in this political moment between Boris Johnson and Ursula von der Leyen, then, you know, why not Sunday or why not Monday morning? Right, but they're the Uh, same issues we've been dealing with for months and they seem to be still pretty intractable. Yes, but uh, one assumes that the negotiators have brought it to the point where there is a gap to be bridged and it's up to the, the top bosses to bridge it. Right. And if they can bridge yeah, it, they, they, you know, it, it's, it's something the negotiators can't do. Only the top politicians can do at this point. And, uh, you know, it has to be done. Bertie Ahern always talked about getting people in a room and pushing them together and getting them to sign the, the, the dotted line because if you leave it too long or you let them come back, later they'll start on picking things again right. there comes a moment when it just has to happen and that moment is more or less now hopefully now and it shouldn't take too much longer uh, to get it done everybody i think wants to get it done but the deal breakers are certainly there and if you let it drift on too much longer and the british were to insist on bringing these clauses in they may very well do that even if there's signature on a piece of paper because they might say we can't take the risk that the europeans won't ratify. Uh, Somebody might veto this deal and then we're going to be stuck come the 1st of January and we would be in a position where we would be open. So we need the insurance policy in there even if we don't use it in the event that a deal gets done and does stick. So I think they will want to keep that stick there and that in itself is going to be problematic. Right. Tony, what powers does Ursula von der Leyen have to get it across the line? She can have a conversation with Boris Johnson but she still has to go back to heads of government to try and get an agreement on on a Europe-wide basis across the institutions. And so what difference would a conversation make that would be so radical that we'd have a deal across the line by Sunday? Well, first of all, the European Commission negotiates free trade agreements on behalf of member states. So it's important not to forget that, that Michel Barnier has a huge amount of leverage and and competence and authority to conclude a, a treaty. But it's always been the case that when it came down to it and you had these big final political hurdles, then it would be kicked up to to the 13th floor in the uh, Berlimont, the European Commission's uh, headquarters building here in Brussels. And von der Leyen and Boris Johnson would would try and thrash out what they could 
over a phone call or video call. Now, my guess is that that is more likely to happen on the fisheries front because there you're in a straightforward numbers game. You know, you want 80%, we want 18%. Uh, let's have a scrap and find something in the middle or close to the middle. Uh, and that can be done. I mean, that's, that's a classic last-minute negotiation. I think where she will find it much harder is to take a decision that would cross the, the line of the EU's single market. I mean, this this idea that the UK, which is already hugely embedded in the single market, suddenly gets a no-strings-attached access that European companies don't have. I mean, you know, the, the, the big manufacturing centers uh, in Europe, France, Germany, Italy, they are looking at this and saying, you know, the UK could have have a sweetheart state aid regime in five years' time. They could diverge from the standards that we have to follow, and they might start to get, uh, you know, preferential access in the whole accumulation side of things. This thing we discussed before about how much of a product has to be British and how right. much can they bring in from around the world. That's and before you consider the implications for future trade agreements that the European Union would conclude with other parties that might cite this as a precedent saying, well, look what you did for Britain. We want the same level of access too. Yeah, so, I mean, the, the stakes are extremely high. and But, you know, Ursula von der Leyen knows all of this and she is not going to take a punt on getting a deal over the line that I think uh, compromises those those principles. Just just to follow up finally on, on so the, why the optimism then? Well, the optimism is or, or does high, that optimism qualified. exist? Yeah, right. Okay. Qualified, you know, because people are absolutely sober enough to know that a, a no deal might yet happen, and they know that this really gets comes down to Boris Johnson making a decision and the view is that he hates to make a decision especially if it's if it's one difficult choice over another and for someone who has you know who has has surfed the waters of brexit on the basis of bright shiny slogans he's not ever had to confront the hard nitty-gritty detail of a compromise and a trade-off and he will have to do that in this situation, and he will have to then sell it on the basis of the detail, which is not going to be pretty when you look at it. Right. So, you'd, so you'd say fifty-fifty, would you? Well, I'd say, you know, there's just the impression I get from the amount of work that's being put in, um, and the fact that they are inching closer all the time. You know, to finally get that close and then just pull the plug would be a very dramatic moment, I think, for the UK to do. Right, um, Sean? Yeah, I, th- I still think 50-50. I mean, I agree with Tony. It won't be for want of trying that this agreement fails, but there comes a point when either they can bridge a gap or they can't, uh, and there are some things that they just will not be able to bridge, and uh, if they can't, then there isn't going to be a deal, and we're just going to run out of time, and the 1st of January will come around in, what, 27, 26 days' time. Uh, it's just going to happen. And then what? We reset and, and carry on for more talks because, as we've said before, this British-EU relationship is going to be an endless dialogue, an endless negotiation. Uh, there'll always be something to be talked about. The symptoms of us coming closer to a deal, heretofore it was, they're in a tunnel, there's nothing leaking out, we're not hearing anything. This week, we heard 
UK sources briefing UK journalists that extra demands were being made by the European Union. And whatever about the veracity of those claims or whether people were interpreting a nuance differently, that's besides the point. The point is there was stuff coming out of the negotiations which would suggest that they weren't terribly tunnely and not terribly near the end. Or they were just trying to bounce the uh, EU into pushing forward. I mean, you know, look, the, the British tactics have been to... Uh, push things ahead and it would also be nice for the British side to get a deal over the line here in London rather than being seen as some kind of supplicants going to Brussels and then having to drag a deal back across the channel and try and sell it uh, in the Houses of Parliament Uh, and as Tony said it's going to be a pretty ugly beast to try and flog uh, to the people there. Also remember what happened to Boris Johnson on Tuesday night in relation to, to COVID. I mean Wednesday it was all the euphoria at how they were able to actually use EU rules to swiftly uh, get the uh, first batches of vaccine uh, out uh, onto the market here. But on Tuesday night, he suffered a big uh, thrashing from his own uh, MPs. 55 of them voted against uh, the government motion, um, which meant because the, the opposition parties abstained that he didn't actually have a majority uh, of the MPs elected in the House backing his uh, new set of COVID restrictions. And that just looks bad, number one. But number two, you've got a posse of 55 people who are now standing up to Boris Johnson and saying, we're ready to take you on. So there's plenty of senators in there with daggers under their toga waiting for the Ides of March when things might be going pretty badly uh, for Mr Johnson, deal or no deal. Right, a classical reference he'd no doubt enjoy. And that was before Anthony Fauci, Dr Anthony Fauci in the US said that Britain had jumped the gun in vaccine approval as well. So look, normally we would look ahead and we'd look ahead at the coming week, but we're on a fairly short time horizon here. What happens over the next 48 hours? Well, uh, I, the yeah, the, the talks are going to continue, obviously, over the weekend. I mean, people talk about Sunday, maybe Monday, getting a deal. They are working extremely hard. They're working very long hours, um, although, as, as we've just heard, they're, they're going to take a pause. But w- I think one of the things to remember about the, the, the two bills that, we've, that Sean has talked about there's a third leg to that stool, and that, of course, is the Northern Ireland Protocol and the elements of those bills which are uh, in breach of the Northern Ireland Protocol are being used as leverage by the UK to get a much easier facilitation of the Northern Ireland Protocol in terms of food consignments going to UK to Northern Ireland supermarkets, in terms of how do you determine what are goods at risk, how do you mitigate the whole swathe of checks and controls that are going to have to take place on goods going from Great Britain to Northern Ireland? And that work between the UK and the EU through the joint committee with Michael Gove on the one hand and Mara Shevchevich on the other in the UK, EU side, you know, that work has been going on and from all by all accounts, that work is going on well and there are no major political standoffs um, remaining. So... You can see a kind of benign choreography here where they get the free trade agreement over the line uh, on Sunday or Monday. Then you have a swiftly, uh, you get an announcement that there's going to be another joint committee meeting. They will sign off on all these facilitations that will make life a lot easier for for Northern Ireland businesses and consumers. Uh, Those issues will be uh, resolved using maximum flexibilities within EU law. Uh, and then the the UK can say, well, actually, 
the clauses in the Internal Market Bill and the Taxation Bill are no longer needed because we've been given the reassurance at the level of the Joint Committee that these mitigations will take effect, these facilitations will be there. And voila, with a flourish, uh, somebody produces a bunch of roses and uh, the, the stink disappears. Um, so, so that is certainly a possibility uh, and that would happen fairly quickly once, uh, if and when, a free trade right. agreement is concluded. On the upside, Sean, Michel Barney, for Michel Barney, he doesn't have to eat sandwiches. He got a downgrade from pizza to sandwiches, which may be considered a negotiating tactic on the part of the UK. On the other upside, for you personally, you don't have to stand in the rain, at least until after this phone call between Boris Johnson and Ursula von der Leyen. So how do you call the coming days? Well, I hope they have a very lengthy phone call. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, they're going to... Um, maybe we can join the rest of the British nation in heading out for the shops tomorrow and uh, back in the pubs and restaurants. There's even small crowds being allowed back uh, to football and rugby matches. So there's the beginnings of a little bit of normality uh, to daily life uh, here in the United Kingdom, and that's an important factor. It's, Boris Johnson likes to have a feel-good factor about what he's doing uh, he had a, a score on Wednesday with that vaccine uh, regulation and the, the, the news here is full of stocks being rolled out. And remember, next week, people will actually be injected with vaccines, uh, one of the first big rollouts uh, of a vaccine. I mean, it's not that big in terms of the population of the UK, but at least people will start to be getting vaccine vaccinated in Britain. So there is a buildup of a wave of something feel good happening here we've also got a fairly short parliamentary calendar so the possibility of him coming back and saying haha another great victory in europe for britain let's get this one through the house of commons a bit like last year with the uh, the withdrawal agreement that was hammered through the commons in pretty quick time wasn't much debate about it wasn't much flap and and people were obsessed you know at, at that point they were so relieved that a deal had been done and that it was almost Christmas, let's get this thing done and worry about anything else next year. Well, I think there might be something similar there. Uh, Tony talked about the stink going away. I'm afraid there might be a bit of a stink uh, for most non-British people because when the PR gets rolling on this, on Boris Johnson's wonderful deal, uh, I think some fairly nauseating stuff is going to come out. But we're just going to have to hold our noses on it uh, as the British try to get this one through uh, their parliament overcome those 55 uh, MPs on the back benches who, who voted against Boris Johnson during the week and get it past the opposition parties uh, as well who will yeah I think the Labour Party will probably support the bill on the basis that a deal is better than no deal so they should be able to get it through if they have something if Boris Johnson is prepared to go with whatever he can uh, whatever deal he can haggle with Ursula von der Leyen in that lengthy phone call on Saturday, then he has a very good chance, I think, of getting it through the House and getting it done and will just declare victory and, and concentrate on the future. January 1 is a new year and at least they won't have to start it with tariffs and there'll be sighs of relief from the likes of the, the British motor industry. So enough industrial support will probably come behind it as well. And the general public will be feeling a bit better because it's Christmas and they can spend money and they can go to the pub and watch footy, etc. OK, as I wipe a tear from my eye on that cheery note, Sean, I think that's a good place to conclude. That's it from me, Colm O'Munga, an RTE's Deputy Foreign Editor here in Dublin. From me, Sean Whelan, in London. And from me, Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe Editor in Brussels. Thanks for listening. 